The only work a sinner can do to obtain eternal life is to believe in Jesus. It's God the Father's will that everyone who believes in Jesus, his son, will be saved and kept secure for all eternity. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 6, John 6, we're going to begin in, in uh, verse 22. As you know, we've been in the study of John now for several months. Uh, we'll probably be here the better part of a year. Remember, John wrote his gospel to accomplish two things. One, to demonstrate and document the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, number two, to persuade everyone who read the gospel of John to place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to forgive their sins so they can experience eternal life. So two goals. One, document the deity of Jesus Christ. Two, to persuade those who read the gospel to place their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins so they can experience eternal life. Now, there's hundreds of miracles that Jesus performed throughout his three and a half years uh, in his time on earth, but John records seven, only seven. He calls them signs because a sign points to something else. They're supernatural signs that Jesus did obviously point to his deity. Now, the context is Jesus has just performed his fourth sign, the feeding of the 5,000. And the purpose of this miracle, of course, was to demonstrate Christ's divine power, but it was also to provide the segue into the sermon that followed the miracle, which we're going to talk about today. That's the exact same sequence he did in chapter 5. He healed a paralytic and then preached a sermon based on that supernatural sign. Now you're going to see the same thing. Last week we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. The next couple of weeks we're going to take a look at the discourse of the sermon that Jesus preached to the crowd on the basis of that. Let's pick up the narrative in John 6, verse 22. This is the day after the miracle. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the shore saw that there was no other small boat there except one and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Here's our first principle today. Seek Jesus because he provides eternal food not just temporal food. Seek Jesus because he provides eternal food, not just temporal food. Now, the day before this sermon, Jesus had miraculously fed, as you recall, a crowd of about 20,000 people on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this crowd was looking for a a miracle-working military Messiah who would feed their physical hunger, uh, free them from Rome, heal their sick, And they were so impressed with Jesus' miracle, they planned to make him king on the spot, force him to be king. And, of course, some of his disciples kind of liked that idea. You know, we're going to be big in the kingdom. We want Jesus to be an earthly king, and Jesus wanted to protect them from that plot. So, as you recall, he sent his disciples back across the sea to Capernaum before he dismissed the crowd. And then he dismissed the crowd and went up to the mountain to pray. Now, the backstory is apparently some of the crowd did walk home. They walked all the way around the north end of the sea back to Capernaum. Some of them apparently spent the night on the east side of the shore because the next day it says they woke up and the day began with a mystery. Where's Jesus, right? 
They remembered he didn't get in the boat because he sent the disciples across. They saw him go up to the mountain to pray, but they never saw him come down. So where is Jesus, right? They assumed that he was still on the east side of the lake. And apparently, uh, some boats came across from Tiberias on the west side of the lake, rowing to the east side because they wanted to see Jesus. It's about five, six miles across. You could row that in a couple hours. And this crowd now that's still left on the east side, they got into the boats and they rowed across themselves, came to Capernaum, and they were chasing Jesus. They were seeking the Lord. And they asked Jesus when they found him at Capernaum, when did you get here? Well, that's kind of a nice way of saying, how did you get here? You didn't walk across the north side or we'd have seen you. You didn't take a boat because there was no boats. Now we know how Jesus got across. He walked across on the water, right? Now, he wasn't going to tell the crowd that. He didn't want them following him just because he did miracles. That miracle was for his disciples only, that walking on the water. Jesus begins, and he confronts this crowd's motives head on. And he says, truly, truly, which says, this is important. Pay attention. Anytime you see truly, truly, if you got the old KJV, it'll say verily, verily, same thing. He's saying, pay attention, this is really important. Jesus obviously knows the thoughts and motives of all people. He knows what this crowd wants. They were not seeking Jesus because of who he is. They weren't seeking Jesus because he was the Messiah, the Son of God who came to save them from their sins. They wanted free food. They got filled up yesterday and they wanted more of that. They weren't interested in Jesus as their Savior. They were interested in Jesus as their meal ticket. You know, the reality is even stray dogs will stick around if you feed them. They don't love you, but as long as you have free food, they'll, they'll stick around, right? Stop feeding them and they'll go away. That's exactly what this crowd does at the end of the chapter because Jesus doesn't give them any more free food. It's interesting. Some things don't change. When you talk to people today, some people follow Jesus because of who he really is. Some of them follow him because of what he'll do for them, right? Give me the goodies in this life. So Jesus often uses um, spiritual or physical terms to describe spiritual realities. Remember, he talked to the Samaritan woman, and what was the metaphor he used to talk to her about the gospel? You were here? Living water, right? Living water. Now, he's going to talk to this crowd about bread, the bread of life. So he's using a physical term that they all understood to describe a spiritual reality he wants to talk to them about. So he's using physical bread as a metaphor for spiritual food, for spiritual life. And he warns them, he says, don't work just for the food that perishes. In other words, just for physical food. Now, physical food is pretty temporary, Right? If you don't fridge it, it goes bad pretty quick. It spoils, it rots, etc. So you either eat it or long-term, or in some cases short-term, it spoils. Even worse, even if you eat a meal, you're hungry again soon and you need to eat again, right? So physical food has its limitations. What Jesus is really challenging is their priorities. God did create us with physical bodies, and we do need to eat. And we do need to work in order to eat. Jesus knows that. He's not saying that. God also created us with spiritual beings, and we need spiritual food. And Jesus is saying, make it your top priority to pursue spiritual food because it lasts forever. Not just physical food because it's temporary. He said the same kind of thing on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33. He said, but seek what? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, the things of this life, will be added to you. When Jesus ran into Satan, actually it was a prearranged appointment in the desert for 40 days of testing, and he was hungry and Satan said, why don't you turn these stones into bread, feed your physical hunger? And Jesus quoted Moses, obviously it was his words, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, Deuteronomy 8.3, and he said, man does not live by bread alone, but lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So physical food's important, but physical food supports physical life, and physical life is temporary. 
Spiritual food supports spiritual life, and spiritual life is eternal. Jesus is contrasting, you know, the crowd is valuing the physical, the temporal, the now. Feed my stomach now, make me more free food. And Jesus is saying, I want to talk to you about spiritual food. I want to talk to you about eternal life and the fact that you should be valuing that. If you seek first what God values most, which is his son, God will take care of your earthly needs. The source of this spiritual food that produces eternal life is the very word of God, which is Jesus Christ himself. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1. And Jesus is able to provide this eternal spiritual food because God the Father, Jesus says, has set his seal on him. And you heard a great deal about seal at the 8 o'clock service this morning. A seal, as it applies here, was really a symbol of royal authority. So every king had a signet ring with their mark, their insignia on it, and they would press that signet ring into wax, which sealed the document and made it authentic. A seal represented the authority of the one who did the sealing. And if you were a king, it was royal authority, right? It was kind of like we would say, okay, I signed something and it was notarized. A notarized signature is authoritative on a given document, a legal contract. That's what Jesus is talking about. God the Father has authorized. God the Father's authority is undergirding and leading the ministry of Jesus Christ, his Son. Well, how do we know that? Well, at his baptism, Jesus said, this is what? My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased at the transfiguration. He said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. All the hundreds of miracles that Jesus did were given to him to do and empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish, led by that, by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had the power in himself to do that, but he did all those miracles under the authority of God the Father. Ultimate evidence of the authorization and authority of God the Father over Jesus the Son was when? He was resurrected from the grave and ascended back into heaven. So Jesus said, he'll see over and over again, he says, I'm not operating in my own will, I'm operating under the will of my Father. Now, since Jesus told this crowd, don't trade your life for the stuff of this life. There's more than physical food to life. There's spiritual life. There's eternal life that is more important than just physical life. And they said to him then in verse 28, okay, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in whom he has sent. Here's the principle. The only work a sinner can do to obtain eternal life is to believe in Jesus. The only work that a sinner can do to obtain eternal life is to believe in Jesus. So the crowd thought that Jesus is referring to some physical work they must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus said, don't work for the things that perish, but work for the things that last for eternity. And they go, okay, what's this work we're supposed to do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, the only human effort that you bring to the table is faith. You believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world and you will be saved. We know, Scripture tells us over and over again, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And the sinner is forgiven and saved at the moment they exercise faith. They place their weight on Jesus' finished work on the cross on their behalf. And the crowd now, they switch gears a little bit. Jesus has said, work for that which lasts forever, eternal life, prioritize that, say, What's the work we should do to do that? And Jesus says, believe in me. And they say, show us a sign to prove who you are so that we might believe in you. Verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, quote, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat, unquote. 
Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of life is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Here's the principle. Eternal life is the gracious gift of God. Eternal life is the gracious gift of God. So this crowd has been asking Jesus, what can we do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus said, I'm the only way. Trust in me. Belief is the only requirement. They balked. And they said, we need to see a sign that documents that you represent God. You know, Scripture tells us here last, last week, it said that some of them concluded that Jesus was the prophet that Moses had written about. You know, Deuteronomy 18, he said, ah, there's going to be a prophet come after me, you need to listen to him. They thought that he was that prophet. And then they concluded, based on rabbinical teaching, that this prophet who was going to come after Moses would do greater miracles than Moses had done. Well, what did Moses do? He provided manna in the wilderness for two million people every day, six days a week, right? For 40 years. You know what this crowd's saying? You know, Jesus, you're, uh, you're clearly from God, but you only fed 25,000 people. And you just did it once. You don't even stack up to Moses. You have got to at least outdo Moses' miracle of manna for us to believe in you. See, the Jews thought that Moses' own merit actually produced the manna. Now, Jesus cleans their clock really quick, and he clarifies, Moses didn't give you the manna. My father gave you the manna for 40 years. The source was heaven, not earth. Moses has no power to work miracles in himself. Interesting, Jesus is like manna, but he's infinitely superior to manna. Now, manna, as you know, was a small, white, round, looked like, tasted like honey bread, sort of sweet. Came out of heaven. Every morning it was there. They picked it up six days a week. There was none on Shabbat on the seventh day. God miraculously preserved it for one extra day if you picked it up on the day before Sabbath, right? If you didn't pick it up, it melted away before noon. Manna means, what is it? What is it? So we call this class manna. What is it, right? <laughs> manna was physical bread from heaven. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. Manna came at night. Jesus came when people were in spiritual darkness. Manna met physical needs. Jesus meets spiritual needs. Manna was a gift from God. Jesus is God's gift to the world. Manna had to be picked up and eaten. Jesus has to be received and appropriated. Unlike manna, which spoiled overnight, Jesus is the bread that will last forever and not grow stale or spoil. When Israel entered the promised land, the manna stopped. Jesus is the source of eternal life, which never ends. And unlike manna, the true bread out of heaven gives life, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. Now, the source of this bread, remember, bread is a metaphor for spiritual life, eternal life. You're going to, bread is always used for that uh, in this particular parable. The source of that bread is heaven. And we know that because if you look at this brief passage, the phrase comes down out of heaven, comes down out of heaven, shows up seven times, which is the perfect number in Bible. Verse 33, 38, 41, 42, 50, 51, and 58. Now, when God the Holy Spirit repeats something seven times in one chapter, what can you conclude? It must be really important. Important. Jesus is saying that God is my Father, heaven is my home, and eternal life is not sourced on earth. It comes from God the Father as a gift in heaven. And I am his son, 
who came down from heaven to earth. Remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John 3.13, and he says, quote, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The only man that has ever been in heaven is the Son of Man, the only God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the authority on heaven because he created it, he lives there, and he came to earth from heaven. A just practical application. Don't waste your time reading books by people who claim to have been in heaven and come back. Don't bother. The Bible says what? It's appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. If someone really died, they wouldn't be back here writing a book. And number two, if they didn't die, they never went to heaven. It's appointed you to die once. No one has ever been to heaven and come back to tell us about it except the Lord Jesus. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. And you know what he said? I'm forbidden to speak about it. The only thing we know about heaven is what God, the creator of heaven, tells us about it. Don't get seduced by people who say, I have been there. They have not been there. They've been somewhere, but they haven't been in heaven. And if they were there, they wouldn't be back here. Just a little clarity. Verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Here's the key thought for this whole section. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Here's the principle. Jesus is the living bread of God who eternally satisfies everyone who believes in him. Jesus is the living bread of God who eternally satisfies everyone who believes in him. Doesn't this sound like his conversation with a Samaritan woman? If you drank of this living water, you would what? Never thirst again. He's talking about food and drink for your soul. Now, the crowd really liked this bread Jesus was talking about because it says, I'll never hunger again. You know what that means? I don't have to go to work because now I got this bread. They really thought he was describing physical bread at this point, right? This happens throughout the scriptures. Jesus is using physical analogies to describe spiritual realities, and people go, he's talking about bread or water. Now, the crowd wanted this wonder bread, right? And they wanted Jesus to provide them with a never-ending daily supply of it. You know, just, Lord, give us, ever give us this bread. They didn't understand he was using physical objects to illustrate spiritual realities. Now, Jesus is using bread as a metaphor for all nutritious food that sustains life. No food, no life, right? In that era, and still today in some parts of the Middle East, especially Egypt, bread is eaten at every meal. As a matter of fact, I know those of you who have trouble with carbs are going to struggle with this, but in that era, between 50 and 70% of all the calories you consumed came from bread. It was a common, staple, essential food in that region. Now, in Asia, you might say, I am the rice of life, because that's the staple food in that area. In Mexico, you might say, I'm the corn tortilla of life, because that corn is the staple grain in that era. What Jesus is basically saying, Without me, you're not going to live, right? I am the bread of life. He says three times, verse 35, 48, and 51, I am the bread of life or I am the living bread. I am the essential food for your soul that enables you to live spiritually. And the I am here, you know, is the name Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, you are going to see the Pharisees, the spiritual religious leaders, 
try and kill Jesus because he uses the name of God. I am. And they didn't like it because he's claiming equality with God by calling himself the very name of God. Now, it's important you understand a distinction. Jesus doesn't say he has the bread of life. He says he is the bread of life, right? What does it say, John 14, 6? I am, not I show you the way, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, right? It says, he who comes to me, that word comes means believes. He who comes to me is the same thing as saying, he who believes in me, places trust in him, will not hunger and will never thirst. We live in a world where people are spiritually famished. They are starving for spiritual nutrition. They are hungry and thirsty, and they are trying to fill their empty souls with anything and everything. The spiritual diet in the world today, it's way worse than junk food. It's poison. What people are trying to fill their soul with in terms of philosophies, belief systems, trying to understand the world, the false religions running around, it's worse than arsenic, right? They're looking for love in all the wrong places. And they were back then as well. Because the truth is, in every human heart, there is a God-shaped vacuum that only a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus will satisfy. Everything else, you will still wind up hungry. I don't care how much stuff you have in this life. I don't care how many billions you have, how many billions you spend, how much food you eat, how many marriages you have, whatever, how many drugs you take. Nothing in this life will eternally satisfy except a relationship with the living God because we as creatures have been created for that very reason. Jesus said, I will satisfy your soul in the same way that bread and water will satisfy your body after a meal. And then he accuses the crowd of unbelief. He says, you've seen my works, my miracles. You've heard my words. You believe that I might be the prophet Moses talked about, but you refuse to believe that I am the Messiah who came to save you from sin and death. Because what they'd seen with their eyes, heard with their ears, never made it to their hearts, right? Never made it to their wills. And you and I know people like that, right? They have all the knowledge. They know the truth. They know the way. People don't reject Jesus for lack of evidence. General rule of thumb, most people don't reject Jesus for lack of evidence. They reject Jesus because they love their sin. And they know they can't follow Christ and hang on to their sin at the same time. So if the sin has got them, and you say, follow Jesus, and they know that the sin is master, and they do on one level, they can't do both, and they know they can't do both. And so they say, nah, I don't have enough evidence for Jesus. The reality is they love their sin. And their sin has them enslaved in bondage. 2 Corinthians 4 says that their eyes are blinded by Satan. By the way, I'm talking about us before Christ. This was us before Jesus. Our eyes are blinded by sin. They cannot understand spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2. And they are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. Dead people don't respond to stimulus. Physically dead people. Corpse doesn't have a conversation with you. Spiritually dead people cannot respond to God without divine intervention. However, the plan of God will never be thwarted by the will of man. Now we're going to step into very deep water. You better start paddling because you're going to swim. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Here's the principle. I'm going to give you time to write this one down. God sovereignly chooses each person who will be saved. And at the same time, each person is responsible to come to Jesus and believe in him. God sovereignly chooses each person who will be saved. And at the same time, 
each person is responsible to come to Jesus and believe in him. Now, Jesus takes great comfort in the sovereignty of God to save sinners. This crowd has just seen miracles and they're blowing him off, right? Those who reject Jesus cannot hinder or stop God's sovereign plan. Now, this verse illustrates two doctrines. We're only going to touch briefly on them. The doctrine of divine sovereignty and the doctrine of human responsibility. Both of those are true at the same time. And we don't understand either one of them exhaustively. But Scripture teaches both of them, therefore we know they're true. Let's take a look and unpack this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. In God's divine sovereignty, He chose some for salvation. But He didn't choose everyone for salvation. Fallen human nature, self-centered human ego, supposes that God wants to save everyone, but people using their own free will have the final say over their salvation. And of course, since God is not strong enough to override free will, the success of God's eternal plan to save people from sin depends on whether sinners choose to respond to Jesus. Now, if that's true, you can forget about praying for the lost because God's not strong enough to do it about anyway, right? If you really believe that human free will is stronger than God's sovereignty, then don't pray for the lost because God's not strong enough to save them anyway, right? Their will is stronger than his will. Some of you are already over your head. Hang with me. The truth is sinners are dead in sin and cannot respond to God's call to be saved unless God intervenes in their life and draws them to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man, one without the Spirit of God, not in Christ, not saved, a natural man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. John 6.44, we're going to talk about this next week. Jesus says, no one, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's an absolute statement. He doesn't say, only the smart ones, they'll come to me without divine help. No, it says, no one will come to me unless the Father draws him. Now, the word draws means drags. As in the disciples dragging a net full of fish out of the water, on the Sea of Galilee. No one comes to Jesus without divine intervention, without divine drawing. God the Father in eternity past, before creation, chose each individual who would ever be saved. Those elected by God for salvation will surely choose to exercise faith in Christ and be saved. What does Ephesians 1.4 say? Just as he, the Father, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, pre-creation, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory. So before God created anything, anything, he had already selected you for salvation. I know. Your mind kind of goes, oof, eternity, that's a big number. Yeah, it's limitless, right? And he said what? He predestined us as adoption of sons. He had already called us out and said, you are going to be part of my spiritual family, and I haven't even made the universe yet. So he lovingly chose some for salvation so that they would praise the glory of his grace, which begs the question, why did God only choose some and not everyone? Here's the hard truth, Psalm 115.3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. 
Lila Trotman quoted that verse when her husband, Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, drowned in a lake in New York. The whole, everybody was freaking out. She comes out of her cabin. They said, Dawes is gone. He's gone. She said, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Romans 9.15. For he, the father, says to Moses, quote, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared before and for glory. The reality is God is God. He is infinite. He is unlimited in wisdom. He's unlimited in power. And he's unlimited in love. And he does whatever he pleases, and he always does what is right. Jeremiah 9.24 says, I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. You know, I hear people say, well, it's not fair, it's not fair. Let me tell you something. God would be perfectly just in sending every single person who ever lived to hell. Because all have sinned. He would be perfectly righteous in doing that because he said, the soul that sins, it shall die. All have sinned. The wages of sin is death. The miracle is not that everyone's saved. The miracle is that anyone is saved. Right? But it says, God is merciful. God is patient, even with those who reject him. And he saves some according to his perfect will. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, which is an unconditional statement. In other words, whoever God has chosen for salvation, they will exercise faith in Christ and come and be saved. This word gives, all that the Father gives to me, it, it has the concept of being entrusted in the care of another. You know, if you've ever had a babysitter, babysit your children, you're saying, I'm giving you my children. You're responsible for them for three or four hours while we go have dinner, whatever it happens to be, and I'm entrusting them to you. It's that kind of picture. You're entrusting something precious. The Father is entrusted to the Son, everyone who believes in Jesus, and Jesus says, I will in fact save them, and I will give them eternal life, and they will want to come to Jesus to be saved. By the way, God the Father does not drag people to Jesus kicking and screaming against their will. People who come to Christ want to come to Christ, right? In the city of Philippi, Paul was preaching, and a businesswoman named Lydia is listening. And Acts 16, 14 says this beautiful phrase, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. You know something? Every one of us in that room that knows Jesus, this is your experience. There was a point in your life when the Lord opened your heart, opened your eyes, opened your will, and you wanted to follow Jesus. You chose to. Free will choice. The Lord honored that. But he had been working in your life prior, in some cases, for decades and decades. And you should have great hope because we look at our loved ones and you go, they ain't never coming to the Lord. Uh, they're not stronger than the sovereignty of God, right? God's going to outlive them. And he loves them far more than we love them. He died for them. That's how much he loves them. So the sovereign calling of God is balanced with his vast, vast love for them. Romans 13, 3, Romans 3, 11 says that on their own, there is none who seeks for God. None. Without divine help, none of us seek for God. Lydia, if, if her heart had not been opened, she could not have responded to the gospel call. No one can believe in Jesus if God the Father doesn't open their blind eyes to the truth of the gospel. And only those who God enables to believe, they will choose to believe. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we know, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and what? The faith to believe is a gift. You didn't come with the faith. God gave you the faith to believe. So even the faith is a gift. J. 
Jesus said, the one who comes to me, the one who chooses to come to me, it means that God's sovereign choice of those who will be saved in no way restricts the offer of salvation. See, I have people say, well, why would you tell people about the gospel because I don't know if they're on God's list? Precisely, you don't. When I came to faith in Christ, I didn't ask, I wonder if I'm on his list. You know, I wonder if I'm in the Lamb's book of life. All I knew is I needed a Savior, so I responded. That's all that matters. You don't know the mind of God. That's why we present the gospel to everyone all the time. That's why you pray that the Lord would open their hearts so that when you present the gospel to them, they will respond to that. And all people are commanded and invited to believe in Jesus. John 3.16 says what? Whoever believes in him will not perish. Revelation 22, almost the last verse in the Bible. It says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. The invitation is always open. And Jesus said, if you come to me, I will certainly not cast you out. You know what that means? It means I won't kick you out. It literally means kick. And there's a double negative here. It says, I will not not cast you out. I will never, never kick you out. In other words, I will keep safe for all eternity all those the Father has chosen and give to me. You can't lose your salvation because you didn't earn it in the first place. He did. So let me just summarize this difficult passage. Christ offers eternal life to everyone, verse 35. Verse 36, but not all believe. Verse 37, all those whom God has chosen and given to Jesus will come and believe in him. And number 30, or 37b, Jesus will save them and keep them for all eternity. And you say, well, why would Jesus accept and preserve all sinners who come to him for salvation? Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Here's the summary verse. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Here's the principle. It's God the Father's will that everyone who believes in Jesus, his Son, will be saved and kept secure for all eternity. It is God the Father's will that everyone who believes in Jesus, his Son, will be saved and kept secure for all eternity. What's interesting about this verse is the number of times Jesus says, the will of my Father, the will of my Father, the will of my Father. You know, we think, He's God. He can do whatever he chooses. But in human form on earth during his ministry, he submitted to his heavenly Father. The source of his authority was God the Father. He's the Son of God who came down out of heaven, and he did nothing without the leadership of the Holy Spirit. His purpose was what? To fulfill the will of his Father. The will of him who sent me, the will of my Father, three times in three verses. Well, what was the will of the Father? The will of the Father was that he sent his son in the flesh to reveal who he was. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. I and the Father are one, he told Philip in John 14. So if you ever want to know what God is like, you don't have to wonder. Read the Gospels, and the life of Christ tells you what the Father is like because the Father and the Son are one. And the next second reason he came was to give eternal life to the world. We just read that. The Father's will was that Jesus, the Son, would not lose any believer who the Father gave him to save. And he reiterates this in John 10, 28. Lord willing, we'll be there in a month or two. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And what's the last phrase? No one will snatch them out of my hand. You cannot behave your way out of salvation. People say, well, you don't know what I've done. I don't need to know. But I know what Jesus did, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. All sin. Our security does not rest on our hold on Jesus, but on his hold on us. Let me tell you, when I'm crossing the street and I got my three-and-a-half-year-old grandson in my hand, 
He doesn't hold my hand. I got him by the wrist. He's not going anywhere. Because I'm not trusting him to hold my hand. I've got him. He's not going anywhere, right? That's what God does with us. It's his hold on us. Jesus said, I'm going to keep safe everyone the Father has given me. And this should give us a great deal of security, but also a great deal of humility. Divine election means you were saved because God sovereignly chose you, not because we did anything to deserve it, right? Now, there's the other side of this, very briefly, human responsibility. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him. Now, this word beholds is an interesting word. It means to scrutinize, right? It means to look intently at. It means to look carefully at. It means to gaze. It means to study. It means to know something intimately. When you behold something, you're looking at something with a great deal of concentration so you can understand it. I know sometimes husbands and wives look at each other that way and they go, Wow, never saw that before. What's that? After 30 years? It means you're trying to understand that person. Gaze at, behold the Son. It means you want to know who Jesus really is. And then act on that knowledge. What's the action? Behold and then believe, right? We talked last week about making two hours of with no electronic time. Make time every day to what? Gaze at Jesus. Think about him. Look at him, behold him, see who he really is, not what you think he is, right? He who beholds me and believes in him will have eternal life. Now, believing, of course, is not just intellectual assent. It's resting the full weight of your eternal future on Christ alone. And the word believe occurs over 100 times in the Gospel of John, 100 times. John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish. John 5.24, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So what's eternal life? Eternal life is a relationship with God. John 17, Jesus defined it. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is God's life in us. And eternal life is both now and not yet. It's both now and not yet. It's now because at the moment of salvation, what happens? God gives you his divine life. The Holy Spirit does what? He comes and takes up permanent residence inside you, John 14, John 15. You have divine life in you from the moment of salvation. Eternal life, because God the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in your life and you can't lose them and get rid of them. Eternal life is not yet in the sense that even though the Holy Spirit lives in us now and he's the down payment, the guarantee of what's to come, heaven is in the future. You're still here in the flesh in this broken, sinful planet Earth, right? So, we have both eternal life now. We have a relationship with God. And we only experience a portion of what we will experience when we get out of here and we go to a place where there's no sin and no Satan and no temptation. And we get new resurrected bodies. And Jesus said, I myself will raise him up on the last day. That phrase occurs four times. By the way, you should read this passage and underline the things that repeat themselves. That would be a good idea. You know what he's talking about. He's talking about bodily resurrection. Bodily resurrection is proof that sin and death have been conquered, right? And Jesus said, I will personally raise them on the last day. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. A couple weeks ago we talked about John 5. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So the voice of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will raise the dead and bring them home to heaven. Eternal life is the ultimate purpose of God for those who believe in Jesus the Son. You know, the message here practically is a great deal of security in the sovereignty of God, but practically speaking, 
Don't get distracted with the trinkets of this life. I see people routinely prioritize earthly pleasure over spiritual treasure. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with earthly pleasure. There's nothing wrong with the food. There's nothing wrong with travel. There's nothing wrong with recreation. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the things of life. But not worshiping it. You, we are supposed to steward the planet, not worship Mother Earth, right? It's where's our focus? Jesus said, don't labor for that which perishes. Labor for that which lasts for eternity. Okay, let's summarize, and then we'll have Tom come and do prayer and praise. First principle, seek Jesus because he provides eternal food, not just temporal food. Number two, the only work a sinner can do to obtain eternal life is to believe in Jesus. Why is that so? Point three, eternal life is the gracious gift of God. And that gracious gift of God comes in point four. Jesus is the living bread of God who eternally satisfies everyone who believes in him. How does that take place? Point five. God sovereignly chooses each person who will be saved. And at the same time, each person is responsible to come to Jesus and believe in him. The long-term outcome of that, it is God the Father's will that everyone who believes in Jesus the Son will be, kept, will be saved and kept safe for all eternity. This was a great deal of deep water. Get ready. There's a lot more to come. Jesus is telling us who he is. He is far more than we understand. Far more than what you think he is. And I'm not saying you don't have accurate knowledge. I'm saying one of the things that this reveals is who the Son of God is and what he desires to do in and through us. So now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.